I have been <clears throat> sick the past couple days. So I've got my tissues, my water, and I just finished a cough drop, and I'm ready to do this thing. A lot of you guys this morning have told me that you've been praying for me, so I really appreciate that. Both Chuck and Joe offered to step in at the last minute and preach if they needed to, and that means a lot to me also. But the truth is, I um, love getting to do this, and I told them even if they had to wheel me in, I I wanted to do this. So, um, if you've got your bulletin, our passage is in there, and I'm going to go on ahead and start my timer, because that's the only thing that'll keep me from talking too much, and then we'll take off. This is Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring delight for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Holy God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the right and the privilege that we have to assemble here as followers of Jesus Christ, to hear your word and to sing together. I pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts this morning to the hope and the truth of the gospel. And I pray that you would convict each one of us how that comes to bear on our lives. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 2004, I had a friend named David who was teaching at a university in China in a city called Zhengzhou. And ironically, a lot of the international students here at Orangewood School are from Zhengzhou. Um, He was preaching, I mean, teaching English at a university there, and he wasn't able to come home for the holidays. So a friend of mine and I decided that we would fly to China to spend the holidays with David in China. So we had to fly into Beijing first before we could fly to Zhengzhou. And when we were leaving the U.S., they told us, when you get to Beijing, there's going to be signs in English. There's going to be videos telling you what to do. There's going to be workers there who speak English. It'll be fine. I don't know what happened. 
But we got off the plane and we were following like the mob of people. And I don't remember if we went to the bathroom or what, but somehow we just saw no one and we were alone and there were no signs in English, no video, no friendly United workers telling us what we needed to do. And we had to catch a flight. Our phones didn't work in China. There was one person we knew in China. We didn't know how to contact anyone in the, in the US and we were starting to freak out. But I was like, it's like the biggest city in China, I think. Um, so probably there's people here who speak English. So we just started walking up with our boarding passes and going, Zhengzhou. And people would say, Zhengzhou. <laughs> like, no, we need, to, we need to go to Zhengzhou. And not just once, but three different times, somebody was like, oh, oh, and, and took us to the ticket counter. We're like, no, 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 we don't need to buy tickets. We need, we have tickets. We need to get on the plane to Zhengzhou. No one could understand. And finally, we found a girl who spoke just enough English that we figured out if we paid her money, she would tell us what to do. <laughs> and so we didn't have any Chinese currency yet, so we slipped her a 20, which was like $5,000 in Chinese. And, and she led us a long, long way away, but she led us to the United Airlines office and there was one lady who spoke English and she said, you've missed your flight. You're gonna have to stay in Beijing tonight, but we're gonna put you up in a hotel. So we still didn't have any way to contact David, but we got to the hotel, we found a computer, we emailed David, we're like, here's what happened, here's when we're getting in tomorrow, so we're good, right? End of story. Nope. It snowed hard that night. And the next day, we went to the airport and we found our gate and we're sitting there and then this guy comes over the intercom and he, in Mandarin, makes some announcement and everyone around us just got up and left. And we're like... <laughs> we, we didn't know if our flight had been canceled or delayed or if it moved to a different gate. And so we go up to the guy and we're like, Zhengzhou. And he's like, Zhengzhou. Like, ah, I don't know what to do. And so we literally, for an hour, we're just walking up and down the airport. And, and it sounds weird to say, but we were just looking for white people. I was just looking for anyone who might speak English. And we actually ran up to a white family and started talking and realized they were German. So that was no help. <laughs> but finally, we find a pay phone and you could put a credit card in it. So we're like, we're, that's it. We've, we've got his Chinese phone number. We're going to figure this out. But when we picked up the phone, it was like this automated menu that was in Mandarin, and we didn't know how to do that. But then I see this guy coming out of the bathroom, who's white. And, and, I, and I just, like, all scruples aside, I was just like, hey, do you speak English? And he was like, yeah. And so he comes over, and we're, like, telling him what's going on. He's like, well, I understand a little bit of Chinese. And he tries to listen. He's like, I'm not getting this. And he's like, I want to help, but I'm about to miss my flight. I said, where are you flying? And he said, Zhengzhou. <laughs> we were the last people on the plane. If we had been like three minutes later, we would have missed our flight. So that was the first and probably one of the only times in my life that I've known what it is to be a minority. And some of you in this room know very well what it feels like to be a minority. But for me, it's the most afraid I've ever been. It, I felt alone and I felt misunderstood. Later on that same trip, we got to spend a few days in Beijing. And I remember we drove past the American embassy and we didn't even set foot in it. But just seeing the American flag, 
outside, it stirred my heart up. You know, I felt this like sense of pride, not like a, not like a sinful pride, but like, these are my people. And I knew that there was one place in all of China that I could go that I would be understood and that I would be safe and it would feel a little bit like home. May Orangewood Church be an embassy for the kingdom of heaven here on earth. May we be ambassadors, little beams of hope and understanding for the weary travelers that we encounter. May no one ever enter this building or encounter us during the week and feel unsafe and misunderstood. Because the church with a capital C, for whatever reason, is God's plan that he's chosen to reveal his wisdom and his love to the world. So in light of that, we're continuing our breakout series. We've been going through Ephesians and it's about Christianity not being this little Jewish sect in Jerusalem. It's about it breaking out into all the world. And just to recap, the apostle Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus and they were non-Jewish converts to Christianity. So non-Jewish people are called Gentiles. And of course, really, he's writing this to all of us because we are all in need of what Paul is giving the Ephesians. But a lot happens in the first two chapters. He talks about the, the privilege it is that we are, as Christians, adopted as sons and daughters of God. And he drives home the point that none of this is because of something that we did. It is a gift of God out of love, out of his grace through Christ Jesus. But then in the last part of chapter two, Paul gets into some controversial waters and it probably doesn't feel like that 2000 years later, but what Paul says in Ephesians two and three landed him in prison. And you could say in a roundabout way that it got him killed. And the crux of it is in verses 12 and 13. So we're going to look at that. This is from our passage that Pete preached on last week. Remember that you, and the you here is Gentiles, were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That is the good news. That's the gospel. And honestly, I could drop the mic and we could sing the closing song and that would be good enough. But he's saying because Jesus Christ did what he did, we who were without God are now near to him. And Paul introduced the radical idea that the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, can receive the promises and the heritage of Israel, the Jews. And I'm just curious to know, I don't know if this is like impolite to ask, but Pete said he did it at Ford, so I'm going to do it here. How many of you here in this room have Jewish heritage? So very few, right? And I'm, so I see three. There might've been more than that. Did any of you not know you had Jewish heritage until you did a DNA kit? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, so probably if we all did like an ancestry DNA, more hands would be raised. But so most of us are what would be considered Gentiles. Um, but today 
in chapter three, we're going to keep talking about this because it, it picks up where it left off and it carries on the idea of Gentiles being included in the family of God. And really, this is the whole theme of Ephesians. It's the whole point that through Jesus Christ, God is creating for himself a new family that's not based on heritage or ethnicity or the principles of this world. And God's means of carrying out this plan is the church. It's us. So if you need a roadmap for where we're going this morning, here it is. Um, Paul's going to tell us where he is, then where we are, then he's going to tell us where we came from, and then where he came from. So I don't know if that made sense. Those points probably wouldn't get me an A in preaching class, but that's what they are. So um, Paul's going to tell us where he is. Let's dive in. Chapter three begins, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. So this is the first time in this letter that Paul refers specifically to where he is. Where is he? He's in prison. And it's interesting because Paul says he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus because actually he's a prisoner of Rome. But I think it's significant that he says Christ Jesus and even significant that he put Christ before Jesus because Christ means anointed one. That's the Messiah. And that anointing is talking about the anointing of a king, the Davidic king, who will reign forever. So Peter's saying, I'm not a prisoner of the emperor of Rome. I'm a prisoner of King Jesus. And this is all part of the plan. And that's why, if you skip down to verse 13, he says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. So the whole passage is basically saying everything that's happening, this unfolding of the mystery, my being in prison on behalf of you Gentiles, it's all part of God's big glorious plan. So don't sweat it. And if you want to know how Paul came to be in prison, we can know. Luke, as in Matthew, Mark, Luke, that Luke, he wrote another book called Acts about the Acts of the Apostles. And in chapter 21, he tells exactly how Paul came to be in prison. And I was going to read the whole thing, but it was really long and I didn't want to lose you. So I'm going to sum it up. Here's, here's the deal, basically. Paul has been going to the Gentiles, preaching the gospel. Thousands of them are receiving Christ. And when they receive Christ, he doesn't tell them they also kind of need to convert to Judaism and they need to get circumcised and they need to start eating kosher and all these things. So When he tells the Christians in Jerusalem this, they're like, that's awesome. And then he says, and I'm coming there to the temple. And they're like, no, don't do that. That's a bad idea. Because there are lots of Jews in Jerusalem who have converted to Christianity also, but they don't like that Paul is telling people they don't have to do these Jewish kinds of things. You follow me? So James, the brother of Jesus, comes up with his plan. He's like, okay, here's what you're going to do. There's these four Jewish guys, and they've got to do Jewish kind of things in the temple all week, hang out with them, go to the temple, do Jewy kind of things, and then everybody's going to be like, okay, Paul's okay. He's doing Jewish things. But the problem is he had also been hanging out with Gentiles that week. In fact, he was hanging out with a guy named Trophimus from Ephesus. And when they saw him with the Jews in the temple, they thought it was the same people. So they basically thought Paul was bringing Gentiles into the inner courts of the temple. Do you follow? They did not like that. And so what ended up happening is they caused a ruckus. They were about to beat 
Paul to death, but then a Roman official came in, carried him off, and arrested him. And for the rest of Acts, he's being toted from prison to prison. That's how he's a prisoner. And if you know that, then it's also easier to understand why he says that he's a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles. He's not trying to shame them. He's just saying, that's the deal. I was hanging out with Gentiles, and that's why I'm in prison. And it's difficult for us to get these days why that was such a big deal. But listen, uh, there's, a, there's a Jewish historian who's kind of like a contemporary of these people. And he, he, in one of his history books, writes that this sign was posted on the inner courts of the temple. No foreigner is to enter within the forecourt and the balustrade around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. So if a Gentile goes into the inner courts, they're killed. If you're the one who brought the Gentile into the inner courts, you're killed. Why? Because Gentiles are unclean. They will contaminate the whole temple. At least that's how they saw it. So think about this. If they were ready to kill Paul just because they thought he might have brought a Gentile into the inner courts, how much more scandalous was it that he's saying Gentiles are just the same as Jews and they have all the promises that we have, the promises of the covenant, this heritage, they've got it all. They did not like Paul. And that is what got him in prison. That's where he is. And now he's going to tell us where we are. So let's continue reading. This is verses one through three. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. And Paul assumes that they've heard about this because he's talking about his conversion. It was a radical conversion, sometimes called Saul's conversion. And many of you probably know that. But he's talking about when he was converted to Christianity, there was a mystery that was revealed to him. And in English, when we hear mystery, we kind of think of something that is cryptic and maybe dark and unknowable. Like we think about like Stonehenge, like we can speculate what that was all about, but we'll never really know. But in Greek, it has the connotation of like a secret. So it's revealed to some people and it's not revealed to other people. And so what he's saying is this secret has been revealed to me. And what is the mystery? Verse six tells us what the mystery is. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So Paul's in prison. And based on that, where are we? This is where we are. We are members of the same body as the Jewish followers of Christ. We're in the same place, even connected. Remember back in chapter two, Paul said, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we are so close to Christ that we are the body of Christ along with all of our brothers and sisters from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But if we're honest, that doesn't hit us especially hard because probably none of you woke up this morning thinking, wow, how am I an heir of the promises of Israel when I have no Jewish heritage? Did anyone ponder that this morning? Probably none of us did. And I want to tell you, honestly, that's a good thing because it means the plan is working. The wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles is gone. Think about it. 
2,000 years after this letter was written, millions of people all over the world call Jesus Lord. It means the plan is working, but it still means that it's hard for us to kind of grasp why this was such a big deal because we don't really think of ethnically Jewish people as the heirs of the promise. Most of us grew up in America with the understanding, true or not, that this is a Christian nation. And if we're honest, like I think I grew up kind of thinking that we were God's chosen people, like Israel did, and that we were God's chosen nation, like Israel was. So really, we're more in the place of these Jews in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, where we think we're the ones who have a right to all of this. We just had our missions conference boots on the ground a couple weeks ago, and I loved it. Um, In fact, like my only complaint about it is I wish there'd been more of it. I could have come every night because I love getting to hear missionaries tell stories about what God is doing in other parts of the world. And it's really exciting when it's missionaries that we have relationships and that we partner with. And my hope and my prayer is that as some of you heard their stories, it stirred you up and maybe God's calling you to go overseas and be a missionary. But for most of us, we wrote a check or we set up a reoccurring payment with our credit card and we'll get updates a few times a year. And, and that's a good thing. Um, we get to hear stories about what our money is doing and it feels good to help those people over there and to help the gospel go overseas. But it gets a lot more complicated when those people over there are here. It gets a lot more complicated when those foreigners are applying for our jobs and asking our daughters out on dates and going to schools that our taxes pay for. It's complicated and it's complex. And yet God has always had a heart for foreigners. This isn't a new idea that Paul is introducing In Leviticus 19, in the Old Testament, back in the Old, Old Testament, God says, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. Why? For you were foreigners in Egypt. God's saying, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget. In fact, if you think about it, the Passover, a festival that the Jews celebrated every year. Why? So that they would remember, because they were people that were born in the promised land, and they didn't know what it was like to wander in the wilderness. They didn't know what it was like to be under the oppression of Egypt. So every year, they celebrated the Passover to remind them, this is where you came from. This is what you were delivered from. It was so important to God that there are 87 Bible verses which God uses to point back to, remember you were slaves in Egypt. Remember you were once foreigners. And this is all of our story because we, everyone in this room was born into slavery to sin. And if we have been set free, it is because of the grace and the precious gift of God, not because we earned it. There's a wall that hasn't been built that divides this room. Do you know what I mean? 
It hasn't even been built and it divides this room and it divides our nation. And the issues that our country faces with immigration and asylum seekers is complex. And I don't want to say that it's not. I'm gifted in some ways, but coming up with big solutions to big problems is not a gift that I have. But we serve a king who solved the biggest problem that humanity has ever faced. And the way he solved it involves calling the weak and the poor and the foreigners and the disenfranchised in the way that the church, not the American church, but the church of Christ, the way that it deals with it has to be different than how an institution or a government deals with it. Because we are people, human beings dealing with people created in the image of God. If we think that because we're more dignified or advanced or civilized or educated, that that entitles us to anything, we've forgotten where we come from. And friends, I am not talking about politics. I'm not making a political statement. I am making a theological statement, not about what our president should do or what Congress should do, but about what we as the church should do. Jesus tells us where we came from in a parable in Matthew 22. And when Jesus tells a parable, it is the one true king telling us what his kingdom is like. He, he tells the story of a wedding banquet. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they wouldn't come. So the people that the king invited represent the hard-hearted Jews who weren't willing to put down their superiority and their tribal pride in order to come to the table. Do you know what I mean when I say tribal pride? I don't mean tribe like which tribe of Israel or an actual physical place, but we all kind of have our tribes like the FSU tribe or the UF tribe or, you know, like we all have these tribes and we all have pride in them where we kind of think we're better than people who are outside the tribe, right? But continuing on, Jesus' parable The king said to his servants, go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. You know who hung out on the roads? The poor, the beggars, the crippled, the blind, the people that the Jews of that day would have said were unclean and unfit to enter the fellowship of Israel. Those are the people that the king invites to the feast. And this, of course, represents us, the Gentiles, or the three Jews also. And this is where we came from. We came from the streets. We came from a helpless estate called in to be part of the feast. And if this is how the kingdom of God works... I hope you'll ponder, what what does that tell us about God? If God is the type of God who wants people, good, bad, poor, rich, Jew, Gentile, if he brings them all in, what does it tell us about God? I think it tells us two important things. One, 
It tells us that God is not some local tribal deity. He's not just a God with a lowercase g of this small nation of vagabonds. Vagabonds. I just made up a word. Um, It means he is God of everything. God created everything out of nothing and he is Lord of all. So by inviting everyone to the table, he's saying, I'm everyone's God, not just this geopolitical state here. I'm everyone's God. The second thing that it tells us about God, if God is willing to bring anyone and everyone who will accept it to sit at his table, it means he doesn't give a rip what color you are, how rich you are, where you live, where you went to school, where you come from. He doesn't care. The invitation is open to anyone. And honestly, the only prerequisite is, are you a mess? Do you need help? Come on in. God doesn't discriminate, but God is not a tribal God. So he doesn't have any sympathy for our tribal pride. There's an epilogue to the parable of the wedding feast. In verse 11 of Matthew 22, it says, But when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. You know what this means? It means we can't come to the wedding banquet and act like we still live out on the streets. If we want to be a part of God's kingdom, we can't still live like we're part of the world. And in a few weeks, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 4, and it's going to get very practical. It's going to be the, okay, I've told you all this about the gospel, so here's what it means. And he's going to say, don't walk like your Gentiles. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He's saying to people who are Gentiles, stop acting like Gentiles. Start acting like a son of the king. God's not a tribal God, so he isn't sympathetic to our tribal pride. So remember where you came from, but don't live like you're still there. And here's the hard word for all of us this morning. You may think, well, I'm not racist. And you may even yourself be an ethnic minority, but we all have cultural and tribal pride that divides us from the people who aren't like us. And I can tell you that I'm eaten up with it. My friends jokingly call me a music snob, and my wife too, and I probably am a music snob. But I want to be honest, it came from a dark place because I grew up in Tennessee, probably lower middle class But for whatever reason, I was zoned for like the rich kid high school, you know? And I didn't fit in because they all could afford to wear like preppy clothes and they lived in big houses and they all got new cars for their 16th birthday. And I just couldn't relate to that. And on top of that, some of the preppy kids and some of the athletic kids picked on me and made fun of me. And so I decided, you know what my identity is? My identity is being unlike them. I'm going to be against them. So I defined myself not by what I was or what I was for, but what I was against. So 
These kids would go to parties and drink on the weekend. So I was against drinking and I was against rich people and I was against preppy people and I was against athletes and I was against so much junk and I was eaten up with anger. And the crazy thing is I thought as a Christian that that was righteousness. I thought I was standing against the enemy. But what I didn't realize is I had misidentified the enemy because my enemy wasn't a 15-year-old football player. Those kids needed the same thing I needed to be known and loved by Jesus Christ. And do you think they saw any of Christ in me the way I snubbed them and judged them and hated them? The way it manifested itself and carried on until probably now is... My identity became music. If they were going to listen to mainstream music, I was going to listen to weird underground music that they'd never heard of. And so music snobs, we pride ourselves on finding the next artsy, obscure band that no one's heard of. And bonus points if you can't pronounce it either. And then we feel like we're superior to people who listen to mainstream music. Do you hear how stupid that sounds? I took a beautiful thing, a gift from God, and I twisted it into something ugly and divisive, just like the Jews were doing with the commands of God. And so we kind of all have to ask ourselves, I'm asking you, what is your tribe? What is your tribal pride? What is that group that you identify with that makes you feel like you're just a little bit better than other people who don't get it? Are you against something? Are you against racism and ageism and sexism? That's great, but that's not very compelling. What you're against, what are you for? Has anyone ever persuaded someone to think a different way by being rude and out-arguing them, there's got to be a better way, right? Tribal pride doesn't just have to be nationality or race. It can be political views. It can be where you went to school, what team you root for. It can be your Christian pedigree. It can be, I have the right theology, and those people don't. They're the bad guys. It can be the style of worship that you like. The problem here is the old people and their hymns. Or the problem is these young people and their loud drums, right? But whatever it is, we're all eaten up with it. And I think that it breaks the heart of Christ. Because it goes against everything that he taught us. He sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us and calling to us with the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to live that way. You don't have to look at your brothers and sisters here in this church and think they are your enemy. There's a better way to live. There is a stronger identity than your tribe. Right before Jesus was betrayed, he prayed over his disciples and then he prayed for us, for the followers of Christ here in this room. He says, I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples he's just prayed for, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, and that's us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, 
that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. Jesus prayed that we would be one so that the world may believe in Jesus. You want to live in such a way that the world looks at you and says, there's got to be something to this Jesus thing. He has to be who he claimed to be. Then love one another and be unified and be one, just as the Son and the Father are one. Um, I'm going to quickly finish this, this uh, section out and then we'll be done here. So we're going to skim through verses 8 through 10. Paul says, To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. And the mystery, he's already told us, is that Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews. The plan of the mystery, hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that, this is the point, Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now he says the purpose of bringing all of this to light is so that through us, the church, God's wisdom can be made known on earth and in the heavenly places. And as we set ourselves apart from the world by loving the Jews and the Gentiles and the weak and the poor and the citizens, and the foreigners, God's wisdom will be known. The plan for God's glory and wisdom and truth to be known in the heavenly places is the church. And he's not giving this to us as individuals. We need each other to do this because none of us are good at it. The last little bit, where Paul came from, you may have noticed that he calls himself the least of all the saints, Most of you probably know something about Paul's conversion. Before he was a Christian, he had all the Jewish pedigree. Tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. He was a Pharisee. He studied under a famous rabbi. And he prided himself on his Jewishness. So much so that he hated Gentiles. And he hated Christians. He hated them so much that he went after them. And he got them arrested. And he persecuted them. And he even fought to have them killed. And when he was on his way to do more of that, Jesus struck him down and blinded him. And he said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The body of Christ, right? And then he calls him to the Gentiles and says, okay, you hate Gentiles, you hate Christians, I'm going to have you go preach Christianity to the Gentiles. Do you see the irony in that? But also think, if Paul's heart could be changed, couldn't ours? Is it not the same power of Christ working in him? And you may have heard, so Paul, also known as Saul, and I used to think that it was like God changed his name, like when Abram became Abraham, but actually... He was a Jew, but he was a Roman citizen. So he had a Hebrew name, Saul. You know what it means? It means asked for. It has the connotation like he had been prayed for. He was desired. He was wanted. And then he has his Latin-based name, Paul. Paul means little. 
or humble. When Jesus called him, he said, Saul, Saul. But in his ministry, he called himself Paul. And it could be he wanted to have a more Gentile sounding name, but I think he wanted to remind himself constantly where he came from, that he was not an apostle or a missionary to the Gentiles because of his righteousness or his zeal for Christ, but because Christ loved him and called him out of the darkness. Friends, don't let this stay on the page of your Bible. I don't know how this hits you this morning. I have no idea what we're supposed to do with this as individuals, but I do know that we all have some kind of tribal pride, some kind of thing that makes us feel like we're better than other people, Christian and non-Christians. And I hope that God will work on your hearts. I hope that you'll allow him. And if you're not a Christian and you hear Jesus calling you from darkness to light, I want you to know wherever you are, there's always a seat at the table for you. And Jesus is saying, come. And I can say, for one, that I would be honored to have a new brother or sister. So let's pray. God, thank you for your word that you have preserved. Thank you for Paul's letter to the Ephesians and how it's still so relevant for us today. Convict us, Lord. Show us our hearts. Show us what it means to be united. Show us what it means for us to be one. Show us what it means not to live out of our old identity as slaves to sin, but our new identity as children of God, brothers and sisters, set free from pride and hatred and fear. Lord, thank you so much for the good news of the gospel that even the hardest hearts can be changed. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.